<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. I'm so sick of Donald Trump, and I get it that Goebbels told Hitler, your first priority is never let the people cool down every single day. You have to say something that produces some kind of controversy every single day. And Trump has been following that advice for almost two years now. You know, which brings us to this issue of the sensitivity of some people. I wrote an op-ed that's up on Common Dreams and Alternet right now about how the guy who shot up the synagogue, the terrorist who shot up the synagogue, because he's a white guy, they call him mentally ill. The terrorist who shot up the synagogue did so because of their association with this Hebrew immigrant aid society, HIAS. And I think you can clearly draw a straight line from Fox News to Donald Trump to the terrorist, or maybe from Donald Trump to Fox News to the terrorist. And now, you know, you have Fox News saying, oh, these people are bringing smallpox. Smallpox doesn't even exist anymore. But I want to talk about fragility for a couple of minutes and have a conversation with you about it. Jonathan Haidt was on Bill Maher's show Friday. I caught it yesterday afternoon and did a great job. I was at a Democracy Alliance meeting years ago that maybe four or five years ago in D.C. that he spoke at. And, you know, I had some problems with some of the stuff he said, kind of the moral superiority of conservatives, which I thought was B.S. He wrote a book about that. But he's got this new book out, The Coddling of the American Mind. And I think he's onto something. And, and apparently a lot of people in Silicon Valley think he's onto something. So, you know, he points out, first of all, that the suicide rate starting around 2013 that was more or less the year when the kids who were born around 1995 and who would have you know been five six years old around 2000 which was the time actually i've got the stat here he said facebook opened up to teens in 2006 the iphone came out in 2007 and by 2010 more than half the teens in the country had one a smartphone so by 2013, 2014, what you're seeing is those young people hitting their last years of high school or their, most importantly, their first year of college. And the kids who literally grew up with screens and spent all their time on screens, 
don't know how to interact socially. And the result of this, according to Haidt, is that the suicide rate for girls in that age group, starting in 2013, from 2013 to 2016, compared to prior to 2013, there's been a 70% increase, about a 40% increase in the suicide rate for boys. He points out if you ask a person over 40 what age he was allowed to walk on his own block or go to the store, the answer was probably around eight years old. And that's true for me. I remember, you know, I was probably about eight when I could walk to the store. If you ask young people today, a teenager today, typically the answer is around 12. He did the research. Since the 80s, I mean, we just, the 80s, of course, the Reagan era, part of one of Reagan's big shticks was sell fear. Now, Donald Trump is doing it far more nakedly than Reagan did, but Reagan's main sales pitch was be afraid. And then, of course, George Herbert Walker Bush with his Willie Horton ads, be afraid. George W. Bush, 9-11, be afraid. Republicans have, you know, they have to sell fear because they don't have a positive vision or agenda. And that fear has saturated us, right? Since the 80s, I mean, you actually have states and communities that have passed laws that say that if a parent allows their child to be in the park all alone, unsupervised, the parent can, can either lose the child or, or go to jail. And Height points out, you know, nationwide, there are about 300 child kidnappings, actual child kidnappings a year, not, not you know, divorced parents fighting over custody kind of things, but about 300, out of 340 million people. He said, that's as close to zero as you can get. The probability of your child being abducted if he's sitting alone in the park is damn near zero. But we have all this hysteria because the media just hyped the, the bejesus out of this stuff. And now we're seeing as a consequence of this, this overprotectiveness, this helicopter parenting, and all this screen time Three now national studies that Haidt quotes pointing out that anxiety and depression are off the scale for these young people who were born after 1995. And by the way, Silicon Valley knows this. I mean, this is the absolute amazing thing. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, said earlier this year, this is from an article on the New York Times, a dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, said earlier this year that he would not let his nephew join social networks. Bill Gates banned cell phones until his children were teenagers, and Melinda Gates wrote that she wished they had waited even longer. Steve Jobs would not let his children near iPads. And now this is like spreading. I mean, this is, there's three articles about this in the New York Times, and the biggest one is by Nellie Bowles. It's titled, The Digital Gap Between Rich and Poor Kids is Not What We Expected. And she writes, as Silicon Valley's, now these are the people who make these machines, right? And who make the games that play on them. As Silicon Valley's parents increasingly panic over the impact screens have on their children and move towards screen-free lifestyles, worries about a new digital divide are arising. It could happen that the children of poor and middle-class parents will be raised by screens, while the children of Silicon Valley's elite will go back to wooden toys and the luxury of human interaction. Uh, they note that lower-income teenagers spend an average of over eight hours a day using screens, while higher-income teenagers spend a little over five hours a day using screens. White children are exposed to screens significantly less than African-American and Hispanic children. And increasingly, these schools all across Silicon Valley are starting to just ban screens, period. No screens. A pediatrician, Natasha Burgart, 
who is also a parent, she says, these companies lied to the schools and they're lying to the parents. It's a huge social experiment. We're all getting duped. She said, our kids, my kids included, we are subjecting them to one of the biggest social experiments we've seen in a long time. What happens to my daughter if she can't communicate over dinner? How is she going to find a spouse? How is she going to interview for a job? Another uh, family in the area, again, you know, working in Silicon Valley, talking about the smart TV and internet-connected television. We took it down. We took the TV off the wall. I canceled the cable. The mother of 11 and 8-year-old boys, as crazy as that sounds. That's how, you know, Louise and I raised our kids, mostly. I mean, basically from 1978 until, I don't know, sometime after 9-11. We pretty much didn't have a TV. On and off, we had TVs, but, you know, and we would watch movies and things on them, but TV for years and years and years, there was no TV in our house. Meanwhile, this article notes, as those working to build products become more wary, that is, the people who are building them are getting wary of them, the business of getting screens in front of kids is booming. Apple and Google compete ferociously to get products into schools and target students at an early age when brand loyalty begins to form. And another piece about Silicon Valley nannies are phone police for kids. Some years ago, Louise and I were in a, a giant atrium, and I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been Iceland. But, you know, it might have also been Disneyland or something. I just, I just don't remember. But it was this giant atrium, glass-enclosed building that had palm trees and banana trees and mango trees and all kinds of tropical fruits and things and parrots and birds and butterflies. And it was huge. And we were being shown around by one of the people who worked there who was in tight with the organization that ran this thing. And she was telling us how they hire local people, they call them tree shakers, and they hire them to come in and shake the trees and the bushes and the palm fronds and things. And like, you know, they, they go, they actually have like, you know, ropes and belts and things that they put around the trees and shake them and pull them and jerk at them. And why do you do that? You pay to do this? Every couple days, somebody has to shake the trees. And she's like, yeah, there's no wind in here. And if trees are not exposed to wind, they don't develop resilience. And we were having a problem. She said in the early years, we were having a problem that the trees would just like fall over. You know, they'd just grow and grow and grow and then fall over. They, they had no resilience. In Kauai, Hawaii, there was a study done. You can Google this. It's called the Kauai Longitudinal Study. It was done back in the, I believe it, was, it started in the 1940s. I could be wrong. It might have been the, the 1950s. But it ran for about 25 years or thereabouts. It was one of the longest longitudinal studies, you know, long-term studies of an individual population having to do with the resilience that pretty much ever has been done. And in fact, you couldn't even do it now because in order to do this, they had to basically ignore what was going on. So they went to the island of Kauai, which at that time, back in the 50s or 60s or whenever they started this study, was basically all migrant labor or native Hawaiian labor but dirt poor. I mean, there's a little tiny island that had nothing but sugarcane on it. And the adults worked on the sugarcane fields, and the kids had one of the highest levels of poverty in the United States. They had one of the highest levels of child abuse in the United States. And they looked at these kids over a multi-decade period. And what they found was that, you know, there's a normal bell curve distribution for resilience. There are some people who are very, very fragile. There are some people who are very, very resilient. And then the vast majority of us are somewhere in the middle. You know, we're fragile in some ways, resilient in other ways. And, you know, and what they found was that the width of that middle shrank. 
So as a consequence of growing up in these conditions of severe poverty and very often terrible child abuse, that there were more fragile kids, but there were also more resilient kids. Now, this is certainly not a sales pitch for child abuse to build resilience, but the point is because it also produced fragility. You know, in fact, when they went back, they they found that there were variables that could predict which way a kid would go, but that's a much longer conversation than I want to get into here. But the point of it is that confronting the world from time to time, interacting with other people in ways that may be uncomfortable, strengthens us. Walking beyond our comfort zone, going out, you know, just exploring the world, you know, as young people, things that kids don't do when they're watching the screen all the time for most of us. I mean, these are the appropriate ways to strengthen resilience. And then the question is, you know, what happens with screens? Well, with screens, you know, the only interaction you're having very often, I mean, is with anonymous people online who may be trolls, they may be bots, they may be all kinds of things. You can do a lot of harm and a lot of destructive stuff there. But And there's a whole nanny industry now in Silicon Valley of nannies, babysitters, child care centers, daycare centers, and schools that do not allow any screens. Even the nanny cannot own a cell phone, right? It, none. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. It's because the people who make these phones and who program the software, they don't want their kids exposed to it. What do you think about that? Blindsgalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online. And because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. Lisa in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Lisa, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's on your mind today? Oh, hi. You were just talking about the parents in Silicon Valley who don't let their kids use smartphones and such. I have a teenage daughter. She's 17. I've been fighting this since she was six. I mean, when she went into public school, I asked the teachers, what are you doing to protect our kids? And they just never had answers for me. And then when the smartphone came along, my daughter is smart and she enjoys technology. And so she gravitated towards that right away. It was just frightening to me. And my husband and I would disagree about it. I told him she should not get a smartphone in middle school. He was like, oh, all her friends have smartphones. And it's a social thing. If she doesn't have the smartphone, she'll be ostracized socially. And so I had this argument with my husband even yeah. and it just has torn our family apart in many ways and you know she's doing fine now but i've had to just fight it all through her school years and she has anxiety anyway and so then when this came along and she could access anything online and bring her more anxiety it just really 
I had to keep talking to her about what sites she's going to and what's going on. And, and you know, people in Silicon Valley, they know this and they know it's addictive and that's why they're keeping their kids away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, from this article in, in today's New York Times, Silicon Valley nannies are phone police for kids. Some of these parents are even producing no phone contracts, which guarantees zero unauthorized screen exposure for their nannies to sign. The fear of screens has reached the level of panic in Silicon Valley. Vigilantes now post photos to parenting message boards of possible nannies using cell phones near children, which is to say the very people building these glowing, mm -hmm. hyper-stimulating portals have become increasingly terrified of them. They, they built the monster, and now they see how it could affect their own kids. And it's very addictive to the parents. Yeah. I would talk to the parents of the school. I, aren't you concerned about this? Because they could access porn and everything. And the parents just seemed clueless. They were so addicted to it. Yeah. They just Here's wanted their kids to get on the family plan so they could save money. And I, I just couldn't even talk to the other parents. And it was just like I was a lone wolf for well, I think I, th I think things are changing, Lisa. I mean, here, this is from this uh, another article in today's New York Times, A Dark Consensus About Screens and Kids Begins to Emerge in Silicon Valley. And uh, in this one, uh, Athena Shavira, who worked as an executive assistant at Facebook and is now at Mark Zuckerberg's philanthropic arm, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative said, quote, I am convinced the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children. Chris Anderson, former editor at Wired, you know, the big tech magazine, he's now the chief executive of a robotics company, founded a website, geekdad.com. He's talking about cell phones and kids. He says, on a scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack cocaine. He said, we thought we could control it, but this is beyond our power to control. This is going straight to the pleasure centers of the developing brain. This is beyond our capacity as regular parents to understand. He's got, tw he's got five kids and uh, 12 tech rules, and his rules include no phones until the summer before high school, no screens in bedrooms, network level content block blocking, no social media until age 13, no iPads at all, and screen time schedules enforced by Google Wi-Fi that he controls from his phone. It's like cigarettes. You see the adults sitting outside their offices looking at their phones and smoking their cigarettes, and it's like, well, you're giving your kids this addictive thing like nicotine yep. when they're six and seven years old. I mean, I see parents... You know, you, everybody's seeing this. Parents are giving their toddlers the phone. You used to give your toddler a toy phone that didn't have the radio waves coming off of it. Yeah. Now they're giving their toddlers the phone while they're waiting in the, you know, doctor's office. And, oh, here, kid, look at the phone while, you know, we're waiting at the doctor. Right. I mean, it's just horrible that yeah. parents aren't seeing how horrible this is. And kids, my little grand, grand niece doesn't want to look at a book. She wants to look at phones and technology. Yep. And I know adults who are like this too. I mean, this really is addictive. Anderson goes on, he says, I didn't even, I didn't know what we were doing to their brains until I started to observe the symptoms and the consequences in my own children. He said, this is scar tissue talking. We've made every mistake in the book. We got it wrong with some of our kids. He's talking about his own children. He said, we have glimpsed into the chasm of addiction, and there were some lost years, which we feel bad about. Lisa, I need to move along, but thank you for the call and sharing your story with us. This is a real challenge. Mike in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to know, does the study give any type of recommendations for age groups and limits, um, screen time limits uh, for the screens? Because a lot of schools and institutions are um, converting over to... Uh, you know, tablets and electronics. So it's a fine line between a healthy development and also uh, being acclimated to the modern world. So does the screen, does the study give any uh, suggestions for 
frame time limit. First of all, with regard to the studies, Mike, nobody is making any recommendations yet because nobody really knows. I mean, this is the sort of thing that 20, 30 years from now, we'll be able to go back and look, you know, at the statistics and the epidemiology and say, oh, here's what happened then. And in fact, that's what Jonathan Haidt did or Haidt did with his book was basically he said these kids born after 1995 who basically grew up on screens, they're the ones who now have among girls just in the last five years a 70% increase in suicide for girls and a 40% increase in suicide for boys. Um, so we don't know at what age it's, you know, there's enough self-control, enough self-regulation to deal with this. If you think of, of uh, smartphones and tablets as an addictive substance and think of them the way that you would think of alcohol or tobacco, then arguably you don't want somebody exposed to them until they have the forebrain fully developed. That's the part that inhibits behavior that can self-regulate. And the forebrain, you know, we used to think this developed around 16 or 17, which is why we set the age of majority and, and stuff like that around that age, voting and drinking and whatnot. Turns out for many people, for most people, that kind of full development doesn't actually happen until you're between 20 and 23. So anyhow, Tommy in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Tommy, what's up? Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a son who is 16 years old. He has Down syndrome, mm -hmm. and he's been under the purvey. You know, we've had therapies his whole life. And one of the things that occurred to me when listening to you talking about these effects of these keyboards and this FaceTime with children, when these apps first started coming out, it became really important in the disability world to get some fine motor activity for kids. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that my son's occupational therapist before age three said that, especially children with autism, it seemed like this one dimension of the screen of a tablet was so much more, they had a lot of success in using that because mm -hmm. three, the three-dimensional world was a little overwhelming. Yeah. And she was talking about how important that was, but she, her fear was that that one dimension and laying on your side while you're watching and the little obstruction the, just the brain development and yeah. what we were doing to kids with disability with these screens are like the blessing and curse part of the whole thing. Yeah. I, and I just wanted to share that with you with the disability. It's, it, we really use a lot of, uh, of these apps with our kids. Yeah. Well, I can see where, uh, you know, technology, I'm not a Luddite. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's a, right. I'm not saying, you know, throw everything out. Uh, and I can see where um, if you had a program, like a drawing program, for example, on a, on a tablet, on an iPad or whatever the Microsoft version is, um, and the kid was using a, a stylus, you know, and drawing on the screen, that's just a, an electronic version of paper and pencil. Uh, I, I don't think that that's probably a bad thing at all. In fact, it seems like that would probably be a kind of a cool thing. The danger seems to be, the big danger, the crack cocaine part of this that all these Silicon Valley people are talking about, is that these social, in particular social media, but also many of the game apps, are designed to be addictive. They provide a reward periodically to people to give them this little boost of dopamine. Oh boy, I'm happy, I just want a star, I just got three hearts, or, or uh, somebody right. just said something nice to me. Or, and the other thing, one of the other, one of the other things that was pointed out in one of these articles is that the stuff that gets pushed up to the top, that gets to be most popular on Facebook, Twitter, and, and, and Instagram, and some of the others, very often, in fact, typically, is the most offensive stuff. Because it's the stuff, it's like, you know, we all, we all stop for fist, fist fights and car wrecks. You know, people slow down for fist fights and car wrecks. It's, it, it, drama draws us. 
And so, you know, whether it's uh, Donald Trump being a fool or, you know, uh, whether it's somebody saying something wacky on the Internet, that's the stuff that kind of floats to the top. And as a consequence, there's just like more and more and more adrenaline and dopamine, um, you know, associated with being on the screen, you know, the, the, the fear and the pleasure, adrenaline and dopamine, and less and less serotonin, the, you know, the calm, the neurotransmitter that you get when you hug somebody, you know, their the actual physical right. contact. So, I, you know, it seems like... Three dimensions. Yeah. The three-dimensional world is, is extremely important. It, it, abs- and it absolutely being, is. They're, being it's being negated with this yeah and that's where and that's where you go for legos and and uh and play-doh and things like that you know yeah go outside with a rock and a stick there you go like we all did like us old farts did when we were kids tommy thank you for the call and thanks thanks for sharing your experience thank you thank you it's great to hear from you marcia in tustin california hey marcia it says here you want to disagree with me Hi, Tom. It's Marcia. Thanks. Oh, Marcia. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I want to uh, take a little bit of exception with the uh, computers and the programs. We watch our seven-year-old very closely uh, as to what, what he watches and what he mm-hmm. gets involved in. And you're right. Some of those games are very addictive. But at the school, he's involved in a program called Lexia. And all the kids are on it, and it takes them at their own own rate. Mm-hmm. That kid is only seven, and he's reading at a second grade level. I mean, it's amazing what kind of vocabulary this kid has. But and that I, may well be the to... case if he just had good instruction on paper and pencil. I'm not saying that, that computers are necessarily terrible things. I mean, if you heard the call, she was talking about she had a disabled child. And for fine motor coordination, using yes. the drawing programs on a tablet is a really good thing. And I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But that's a whole different thing than the crack cocaine you get from social media. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I, I get... A little upset when people say they want to take the tablets away totally and all that because I'm witnessing this child who is and the kids around him who are learning at a fantastic rate and they love it. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, in order to know that it's the computers, you'd have to compare it to a comparable school with a comparable, you know, comparable kids of socioeconomic background and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think that any of those studies have been done. There's an article by Nellie Bowles in today's New York Times. It's titled, The Digital Gap Between Rich and Poor Kids is Not What We Expected. And what they're finding is that in middle-income and low-income neighborhoods, more and more public schools are doing more and more screen time. And in many cases, they're doing it because companies are coming in and selling it to them and charging them for the programs, for the software, and helping them mm-hmm. do fundraising drives and things to get the computers. Or, or in some schools, the parents are affluent enough to provide the kids with schools uh, with the computers or the schools are affluent enough. There's a profit motive here, too. And whereas in the upper middle class and very upper class schools and and some of the very best prep schools in the country now are banning computers altogether. They're just saying no. Well, yeah, they probably have the ability to uh, supervise the children um, more shall I say strongly than yeah than, well, that's a, that's a, yeah um, they probably have a you know four to one or eight to one you know student teacher yeah. ratio rather than forty to one like in a public school you're right and that exactly yeah, yeah. but uh, it, what I see from my and I, I'm a great grandmother and, and this is my great grandson uh, mm. whom I'm raising and I've raised kids who have gone through school with no 
computers at all. Mm-hmm. And the speed with which this child is learning is just bowling me over. That's you great. Know, it's amazing. Yeah. So well, I don't know. I, I kind of like it, but okay. I do watch what, I, I'm glad I do it's watch a good, the social. Yeah, I'm glad it's a good experience for you. I caution you to be very, very careful about social media. That's the big thing. Marcia, thank you for the call. Nader in San Rafael. Hey, Nader, what's up? Uh, good morning, Tom. Uh, very glad to be on your uh, program. And I just want to talk about the previous caller. Uh, just wait till that child is 13, 14 years old. Things will change, and the video games will change, and they will just get more uh, aggressive about wanting to play, and uh, you can't stop it uh, at all, and hours and hours go by. And I wanted to ask you... <clears throat> There is a lot of talk about, yeah, this is addictive. It's definitely addictive. And it's not good for the kids as they go into their teenage years. It's a waste of their time. They're not socializing. We get all that. What are you supposed to do as a parent of a 14-year-old who is taller than I am? And, uh, (laughs) you know, those days are gone that I could just go in his room and unplug it and tell him no no more you you, yeah. you know you have to go eat your dinner now so what am i, I get supposed it. to do what are parents supposed to do i I don't know, Nader. I mean, the, the the one thing that I've seen a fair amount of, in fact, Apple just built it into the most recent operating system for their phones and iPads, is you can configure your, your device so that there's no color in it. So it's entirely black and white and gray. And that appears to have a really significant impact in the in the in how addict in reducing how addictive uh, both some types of social media and many video games and things like that are um, and and of course uh, you know there are there are programs and ways that you can limit what websites they can go to and that kind of stuff I mean you know blocking software has been around forever it was first used for pornography but most kids can figure out right. how to get around that but the color thing, um, that, that seems to be something that there's a growing consensus about. But the other thing, I suppose, Nader, is, you know, just like with anything else, sitting down with your kid and having a conversation about it and talking about, it. you know, this, this, this could be dangerous stuff. I mean, it's like the conversation you have, uh, you know, about sexuality. It's the conversations you have about how do you treat your friends. It's, uh, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this has got to be the new area where parents and kids are, are communicating with each other, it seems to me. What about government? Uh, you know, government tells us you can't drive. Uh, your child cannot drive until they're 16. They can't right. drink until they're 21. Right. What about that? What about regulation? I, you know, we were having those debates back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s around television, especially after color television became ubiquitous in the mid-60s. And I'm old enough to remember that. And uh, I think there was a broad consensus that we really don't want the government regulating that sort of thing or our kids. Although we wouldn't mind if the government paid for the research to tell us what's best to do. Riduzone. If you struggle to lose weight, listen carefully. Riduzone works. I've never before endorsed a weight loss product, but I've seen the result firsthand with my brilliant wife, Louise, who, like so many, has had her share of diet frustrations. Losing weight is hard, right? Louise heard about Riduzone. She did her homework, learned it's FDA accepted and that it helps us lose weight in a revolutionary way. Riduzone comes out of university research that discovered a molecule that helps regulate appetite. When it's out of whack, we're always hungry and crave foods we shouldn't eat. And good luck losing weight when you're already starving on day one. Louise tried Riduzone, she looks amazing, and I've never, never seen her this excited about a weight loss product. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Riduzone. 
Go to tryridgezone.com and use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive up to 65% off on your order and free shipping. That's tryridgezone.com, promo code TOM. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sean in Stamford, Connecticut, watching on YouTube. You wanted to continue the conversation about screen time? Yes, I did, actually. I have a psych background. I used to work with kids who had special needs, and I do know that technology could be very helpful, as the woman in the previous hour had mentioned. But what's also happening is we're starting very, very young, and it would be appropriate for them to use such technology. Mm-hmm. And also what I find is like, I was in a supermarket in Montstack, and I remember seeing a daddy, a dolly, 18 months old, with her nanny, and she had a cell phone. She handed me the phone. The baby? I'm like, a baby, a baby handed this phone. Yeah, the, yeah, it was, she was 18 months old. Wow. It was a yeah, cute little girl, but I'm like, I can't take this from you. And I handed the nanny back the phone. But it was like, are you serious? And I'm like, and I love technology, but I also, I don't like Facebook because all the negative implications it has Mm. And now you're seeing all these things with the schools in uh, California mentioned. I'm like, oh, my. And then I remember seeing a, a school in Long Island, the Waldorf School in Garden City. And they do a lot of hands-on learning, do not use as much technology. Mm. They will use it. I was, I was on their website, but they will use some. But they emphasize hands-on learning. And I think that's the way we need to go more and more. And there was also a piece on C-Lab the other day about 20-somethings who can't cope with life because they've been brought up with technology and such on the Atlantic Magazine. Yeah, that's Jonathan Haidt. He just wrote a book about that, uh, The Coddling yeah, of I, our, I, I, of I know. He mentioned, no, I read that piece yeah. earlier, and that's why I called. Because yeah. I said, oh, yeah, this is what I read. So, and he mentioned the, the stuff on the Times. So I'm going to check that out while I'm done with lunch. But thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you, Sean. And thanks for yeah. sharing your uh, observations and thoughts with us. If you just tuned in, we've been talking about the digital gap, wealthy school districts, affluent upscale school districts, and schools all over Silicon Valley are purging their schools of screens. No more cell phones, no more tablets, no more computers, no more screens. In fact, there's three articles about this in today's New York Times. Two of them are among the, the the 10 most forwarded stories today. The digital gap between rich and poor kids is not what we expected. In other words, poor kids are being given screens in school. Rich kids, they're taking them away. Another one, a dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. The opening sentence, the people who are closest to a thing are often the most wary of it. Technologists who know how phones really work have decided they don't want their own children anywhere near them. The risks for addiction and stunting emotional development seem high. And Silicon Valley nannies are phone police for kids. This is the third article in today's New York Times. It's about San Francisco. And it's about how there's this whole now movement, groups of nannies that you can hire who promise that they will not bring a cell phone with them. In some cases, they don't even own a cell phone, just a flip phone or you know an old-fashioned phone. So there's no possibility that the kid that they're the nanny for can sneak their cell phone out. This is from this uh, article on Silicon Valley nannies. The fear of screens has reached a level of panic in Silicon Valley. Vigilantes now post photos to parenting message boards of possible nannies using cell phones near children, which is to say the very people building these glowing, hyper-stimulating portals have become increasingly terrified of them. Hey, Graham, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? 
Yeah, Tom, I just want to share a brief conversation I had the other day with a local teacher who has been both a kindergarten teacher and a first grade teacher. She was lamenting that she didn't think that she was long for the world teaching anymore because she was so disheartened by the anti-education curriculum that they're having to teach to. And we had a little discussion about how many schools are are no longer teaching uh, cursive handwriting and so forth. And she said, but what's really put sort of the nail, she believes in her coffin uh, with teaching, is that they're experimenting apparently in our county this year, and they're not going to be teaching children the alphabet using like lined paper and writing on the board and so forth, but instead they're going to be teaching them on their cell phones and or computers. Yeah. And she said they're no longer uh, allowed to even um, take the cell phones from students because parents have complained in the past that maybe they thought they were damaged or this or that. And we're talking kindergarten at first grade. Wow. Wow. I know. See, that's, I, I mean, the idea that they'd be bringing cell phones with them is crazy, but. Yeah. There are literally multi million dollar, multi hundred million dollar companies, probably billion dollar companies out there who are pushing basically a sales pitch on parents of young children that we have the software that will help your child learn how to read faster, that will expose them to right. the wonderful world of literature, that can teach them with YouTube videos and things in ways that you, you don't have access to these great geniuses in your little classroom, in your little town. And these companies are making a fortune off this and they're selling these to school districts. And the school districts that are eagerly buying this are the ones who are in the middle and lower middle class areas and the lower income areas because they feel like, you know, hey, we need to catch up with technology and this is the brave mm-hmm. new world and we need to be part of it. And then you go to Silicon Valley, we're not going to use computers. Mm-hmm. The preschools, it's Legos and Block and Play-Doh. It's fascinating because the, the Silicon Valley ones, they're the ones who make this stuff. Right. And they don't want their kids around it. I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing. I love the show, and I'll let you get back on with it. Thanks Thank a lot, you for Grant. taking my call. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it's good, good hearing from you. This, I mean, this, this is a real issue, is, you know, what do we do about this, and how does this influence kids? And, and really, you know, we need to kind of uh, uh, separate the technology from the use of the technology. That is to say, you know, yeah, we want our kids to know how to use a phone. We want them to use, know how to use computers and tablets. But how much time should they be on Facebook, knowing that Facebook's whole business model, what makes Zuckerberg a, a multi-billionaire, is jolting you, right? The wildest stuff is what always floats to the top, and that's very often not what's best for your kid. And it's true right across the, the spectrum of social media. So what do we do with that? How do we control and regulate that? I don't have an answer uh, other than, you know, educating your kids, sitting down with your kids like sex ed. You know, it's computer ed. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen, and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. 
We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the one plus one equals boom effect of Super Beats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. Tom Arman here with you. The place where despair is not an option. And no, it's not. It's just paralyzing you. Move forward. Come on. We got we to gotta keep moving forward. Just a quick heads up. We just put it up on Facebook, and it, it's probably going out on Twitter right now, too. As you know, I've spent the last year writing a book about the hidden history of the Second Amendment. In fact, you all helped me come up with the title. We did a survey monkey for the title, and we picked the, the title that pretty much everybody liked. And now we'd like you to help pick the cover. The book will be out in the spring of uh, next year. And the title is The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. And the, uh, the, there's a SurveyMonkey link. You can find it on our Facebook page, and you can find it on our Twitter feed. And it's going to close on Friday. So before Friday, you need to get over there and vote on what you think the best cover is. My favorite is the one that looks kind of old and has some kind of menacing guns in it. But I want to hear your feedback, so let us know. So we've been talking about Trump and Pittsburgh. He's trying to distract us all. This is, you know, the, Goebbels' first rule for Hitler was not tell a big lie and repeat it over and over again. That was the second rule. The first rule was never let the people cool off. In other words, every single day, you have to roll out something that is going to cause some group of people to be outraged. And then they howl in outrage, and then you howl back at them, and just don't ever let them cool off. Keep the pot boiling every single day. Every day. And when you read They Thought They Were Free, or when you read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich uh, by Schur, uh, They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer, and I've read both these books, or I've read at least most, much of <laughs> The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, it's a 1,200-page book or something like that. But you read these books and you get it that absolutely Hitler followed that advice every single day. And in Milton Mayer's book, there's this line. He said, we got used to being governed by surprise. Every day there was a new, a new thing that we had to deal with or cope with. And that's what Trump is doing. Oh, he's going to repeal the 14th Amendment a provision for birthright citizenship. Going to repeal that with an executive order. Now, you know that's BS. I know that that's BS. There's, you know, it's, it's not possible. He'll sign an executive order that's basically a proclamation. I proclaim that this is not a good thing. So what? Why is this even news? I mean, if you want to have a serious movement to amend the 14th Amendment, that's okay with me, frankly. You know, I, we're one of 30 countries that has birthright citizenship. You know, if you're born on the soil of the country, you are a citizen of the, the country. There's 30 countries that have this. I don't think that we have to have it. I'm fine with coming up with a different system. Let's have a conversation about what it should, what it should be. You know, should it be like Canada's? Should it be like England's? Should it be like France's? Other countries that don't have birthright citizenship? But if you're going to do that with the 14th Amendment, I'd like to make one other suggestion. Corporate personhood 
the modern interpretation of it is based on a 14th Amendment case that was brought before the United States Supreme Court in 1886, entitled Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. I wrote a book about this case. It's called Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People. And the argument that was made by the railroads was that they should have constitutional rights. They should be considered persons under the law because the 14th Amendment doesn't say natural persons you know, is it, no person shall be uh, denied equal protection under the law is the, is the phrase, as I recall, in the 14th. I don't have it in front of me, but that's my recollection of what it says. No person shall be denied equal protection under the law. And, of course, what they meant was no black person. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed to end slavery. So that's what the writers meant. But a generation later, what the railroads argued was... Because that doesn't say natural person, see, there's two kinds of persons at law. There's a natural person, there's an artificial person. An artificial person is a corporation, a government, a church. A natural person is you and me. Because it doesn't say natural person, it includes us. We're persons too, which, by the way, is legally true. goes all the way back to Blackstone, you know, back to the 1500s, 1600s, British common law. And so if we're going to amend the 14th Amendment, let the right-wingers take birthright citizenship out and, for me, put the word natural before the word person in the provision about equal protection under the law. I'm okay with that. But the bottom line is this is just, this is just Trump doing his thing, doing his Hitler thing. And I don't know, how, you know what else to call it. I just, I just published a piece. You can find it uh, over at both Common Dreams and on Alternet. Uh, different titles, but uh, and it's probably will pop up on a few other sites as the day goes on. Um, the Independent Media Institute now syndicates my writing. And I point out, you know, it's already started. They are texting, messaging, tweeting, even calling into this show. Breitbart is bragging that they got it on CNN. What am I talking about? Well, th this is the quote I used. It's, it's kind of a, a I, I link to a Breitbart piece, so it's kind of an agglomeration of these things. And actually, there were several of these on my Twitter feed last night. I mean, they're still there. And, quote, This killing in Pittsburgh has nothing to do with Donald Trump. He's not an anti-Semite. His daughter converted to Judaism, and his grandkids are Jews. How can you blame him for that mentally ill guy? Mentally ill, of course, because he's a white guy, right? Instead of calling him a terrorist or a murderer. But the reality is that it does have something to do with Donald Trump. As I mentioned yesterday, I talked about this yesterday, that uh, I don't think this is getting anywhere near enough coverage in the media. That he was going after a congregation, the, the Tree of Life synagogue, that was part of, it was, it was one of the 270 synagogues around the United States, in 23 states, who were participating in this national refugee Shabbat. This is with uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIAS. And it was October 19th and 20th of this year, and they, they, on their website they listed all these places. And, you know, I'm not going to name him. This, this, and I almost said something you can't say on the air. Uh, I, I, I'm, this, this terrorist, this killer, this murderer, this vicious, vile, despicable piece of human crap, this guy, when Hyas announced on their website that they were having this refugee Shabbat a week or so ago, and they listed this synagogue 
among the other ones, which was apparently near where this guy lives. He actually responded to them. He first had posted, you know, open your eyes, it's the filthy, evil Jews bringing the filthy, evil Muslims into our country. And then he, he tweeted explicitly, by the way, that Hyas likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics, I'm going in. And he went in guns blazing. And meanwhile, Newt and Trump and Fox are going all day, all the time. Oh, you know, those, those brown people from south of the border, they're on their way. Oh no, this is gonna be a terrible thing. We've gotta all freak out. We've gotta all be scared, all this kind of stuff. But there is, I think you can draw a direct line from Donald Trump's anti-immigrant demagoguery, which he literally opened his campaign with two years ago in New York City. A straight line from that to the slaughter in Pittsburgh. Hey, thanks so much for your support for the Tom Hartman program. We deliver our program, of course, to commercial stations, which is how we pay our bills uh, through the revenue from running advertising. And you can learn more about those at our website at TomHartman.com. But we also share our program with non-commercial outlets from Free Speech TV to Pacifica stations all over the country. And because with the Pacifica radio stations, there's basically no revenue coming in. The way that we support our nonprofit outreach is in large part through Patreon. And you know, over Patreon, people who support our program at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Um, people who support our program there get you know special little clips and there's a few other goodies uh, behind the scenes kind of stuff but that's principally if you want to support the Tom Hartman program um, that's the way to do it is to get over to patreon.com slash Tom Hartman and check out what we're doing and support our program thank you Tom Hartman here with you, and let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And loving what you do, Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas. You can follow him at The Courier. He's joining us from the United Nations. Luke, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Great to have you with us. So Donald Trump continues to try to make uh, brown people coming in our direction, the big freakout thing, uh, the so-called migrant caravan. And, uh, you know, this uh, is uh, apparently what provoked this fellow who did the shooting in Pittsburgh now. Yeah, he's he's yeah. specifically referenced it. I've, I've got an article about that over both on Alternate and Common Dreams right now. You can, people can yeah. read if they want all the links and everything. Um, so what's the latest on this? Well, I checked in on the location of this caravan today, which is in the tiny little town of Tapena Tepec, uh, which is by my calculation on Google Maps, which offers a walking directions mm -hmm. <laughs> feature, is uh, about 930 miles from the U.S. border. This group is walking at less than 20 miles a day. Remember, again, that uh, about a third of the people in this group are children. Uh, so not surprising you're not covering, you know, 50 miles a day by foot. This right. is a, a, a pretty slow pace. They are probably so about 40 days 50, days, 50 days away 50 days. from the border is, uh, yeah. I think, a pretty conservative calculation. I do want to pull up some stats, though, that I've been crunching here just to put sort of um, the this, these numbers of people in scale, because I think um, one of the big uh, sort of messages coming from the White House that justifying this military deployment, 5,200 troops heading to the southern border, is that this group of people is going to overwhelm 
existing facilities. In December of last year, at all of the border crossings in Texas, I was able to pull up from Customs and Border Patrol data the number of pedestrians, not people in trucks or buses or trains or something crossing the border, but the number of people who arrived on foot. You had 1.52 million people cross Texan border crossings to Mexico and back in December of last year, which is when they are scheduled to arrive this year. That's 49,000 or so people a day. So, again, this notion that a group of 2,000 people, if truly you actually have 2,000 people reach the border, which past caravan statistics don't suggest is going to be likely, is not going to in any way overwhelm uh, the American Border Patrol facilities. I also pulled up a really interesting graph, which I can, I'll, I'm going to retweet on Twitter in a second, and, and your listeners can check it out on my page, um, which is a, a graph showing the number of migrant apprehensions per Border Patrol agent per year at the U.S.-Mexico border. They have data going back to the early 1990s. Um, around then, 1993, the average Border Patrol agent is um, apprehending 352 migrants per year, almost one a day. Um, but 10 years later, 2003, that's down to 92. So you're about four times lower. Now per year, the estimate for 2018 is that the average Border Patrol agent will intercept 23 people over the course of a whole year. So once again, um, their workload is much lower than it's been right. almost at any point in recent history. And so to suggest, uh, you know, uh, backup needs to be frantically called in, I think is an exaggeration. And finally, let's uh, point out one important fact, which is that the last time you've had armed uh, military uh, stationed at the southern border was 1997. And you know what happened then? You, you, you remember it probably more than I do. You had an 18-year-old American citizen who was herding goats shot and killed by four members of an elite Marine squadron who were in uh, heavy camouflage camping out as if they were, you know, in some uh, war zone. And this kid was carrying a pistol. He shot it to ward off a predator that was near his sheep. The Marines took that as a, a threat, evidently, and it killed him. Uh, you know, basically sniper shot this guy. And it led to the Secretary of Defense to mandate uh, that U.S. Uh, armed military personnel not be allowed to conduct border patrols and not be actually allowed to carry weapons at all. This is now being revised. And so we are inserting uh, military, uh, you know, uh, personnel who have, I think, shown themselves uh, at times to not at all really possess the right, uh, you know, skills to be able to perform asylum responsibilities and the careful right. work of uh, intercepting migrants to to this task. This is, I think, this is you know, crazy. We're, we're this is, this is just all for, theater for, for the that. election. Um, uh, we just have a minute left, Luca. Iranian yeah. TV says they have a uh, they know why Jamal Khashoggi was was murdered. What's what's the deal? So Press TV, and they're actually building off of a report from the Sunday Express, which is a British paper. So actually, they're the ones doing the original reporting here. They say they have a friend of Khashoggi who came to them saying that Khashoggi was about to obtain documentary evidence of the Saudi government using chemical weapons in the war in Yemen. Now, there have been oh, wow. uh, obviously confirmed reports of use of cluster munitions and other sorts of very sanctioned weapons of war. Uh, this would be a whole new level. The allegation being, it seems, that uh, the Saudi Air Force is using U.S.-supplied white phosphorus 
in operations in Yemen. Whether or not that's true, I still think we can agree this war has been brutal. I think the conservative estimates are about 15,000 civilians dead. I think one in three Saudi munitions hitting civilians as opposed to military targets or fighters. Uh, but that would be a, a pretty And over a million people on the edge of starvation. I think it's way more than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. It's a massive, massive famine as a result of, of you know our support of Saudi Arabia in this insane war. Luke Vargas, you can follow him at The Courier on Twitter. Luke, thanks so much. Thank you. Talk Media News. Kenyo in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kenyo, th- thank you for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Yeah, this is Kino, the Moose oh. Herder Coalition. Oh, Kino, yeah. Okay, how you doing? Good, good. I want to get it on the public record. We moose herders, Republicans that want to chip in, go in with the Democrats in the new Congress. If, if the Democrats win the Congress, we want Joe Biden to be the Speaker of the House. Because oh. it does not have to be a member of Congress that can be chosen to be the Speaker of the House. You're right. And, and see, Joe Biden has corresponded with me, and he's one of the few politicians that's written letters back to me when I write to him, mm-hmm. and, and I think the world of Joe Biden, and so I want the Democrats to consider putting him in the Speaker of the House, and that'll really help us with our Moose Herders agenda. Now, you know, the first thing on the agenda is health care reform. The second thing is a cyber war security agreement with Russia. Now, we can, I already sent a letter to uh, Vice President Pence and asked him to get start working with John Huntsman, who's the ambassador over there, on a cyber war uh, rules of engagement that was called for in the Bloomberg magazine several months ago. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is a... a, a you a, do that with China, too, by the way. Yeah, China and Iran and North Korea eventually, but yeah. first with Russia. Yeah. Right, then we want a, a, a mass transit system, a high-speed train here. In, uh, now, I just heard on the news now, today... Kino, you are not sounding like a Republican. You know, you're talking like a Democrat here. Well, I, no, I want coalition with Democrats. I'm a moderate Republican who, okay. who wants reform in the party from these old geezers that have taken over. Mm. And we, we want a high-speed train system. And, and now we can set up a presidential fitness tribunal and with Joe Biden being the Speaker of the House. And we can convince Pence to dump Trump with a fitness tribunal. You're talking through party. the 25th Amendment? According to the 25th, because the 25th minute says Congress can appoint a body to do it. It can be either the cabinet or a body appointed by Congress. Although so it has to be initiated by the cabinet. Possible. Yeah, actually, it has to be initiated by the vice president and go through the cabinet to the uh, Speaker of the House, as I recall. Listen, don't you know that Pence wants to be president? And oh, of course. And convinced to dump Trump? Yeah. yeah. No, I think, you're, I think you're right. I think the, the moment that Trump is, is a wounded animal... And particularly if he's lashing out in ways that even Republicans can't swallow any longer, and he's right on the edge of that right now, I think it's entirely possible that Mike Pence would, would pull a 25th Amendment. Yeah, well, now let me tell you, I was on C-SPAN with the Ralph Nader last Wednesday, just mm-hmm. after 9 o'clock, if people want to pull in and see me talking to Ralph Nader. But uh, we're going to get this thing going, and we're going to have reform, and we'll activate the bipartisan working group in Congress, too, and we're going to get Mitt Romney to be the leader of the moose herders in the senate you know i'm i'm predicting that mitt romney's going to run for president in 2020 what do you think well i'm recruiting him to be in the moose herders and that we do what's necessary to have the presidential fitness tribunal and i want mitt romney i see we could put ex-presidents and and candidates for president on the tribunal we could have jimmy carter and george w bush and mitt romney and uh, and bill clinton and since hillary was a candidate we could have her on the tribunal you know that'd be peer group for uh for a president sure. Sure. that were nominated you know, is, Are you calling a moose herders in, in memory of Teddy Roosevelt? Absolutely. He, he uh, started the bull moose 
party. He was right. it was a nickname, but that's sexist. We got to be inclusive of women too. So the moose herders is meant to be not sexist like the bull moose party. So I see. The evolved. I get moose it. Party. I get it. I was I was I, I couldn't figure out what the moose thing was, and now it suddenly it hit me. Okay, Kino, thanks for the call and thanks for the update. And uh, yeah, Joe Biden for Speaker of the House. I'm totally with that. Yeah, it sounds like a plan. So, Rich in Cedro, Woolly Washington. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, you like to refer to the uh, rise and fall of the Third Reich by uh, Shirer. Mm-hmm. I would suggest folks who get a hard copy of that and start reading the first half, have a highlighter or a colored pencil handy, because you're going to find on page after page the strategy steps of the Republican Party. It's like the blueprint of power that they stretched out. Instead of investing in one megalomaniac like an Adolf Hitler, they seem to have stretched out over a generation, starting maybe in the Nixon era, possibly yeah. at the end of World War II. It was a global said that uh, the war is not over. We've just exported it to America. I don't and, recall uh, that quote, but yeah. But that, that little uh, 1984 Ministry of Truth memory hole thrown in on the side, and you've got the blueprint for uh, the Republican strategy. What I did read of uh, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, I read back in the in the 80s. Uh, Louise actually read the whole book cover to cover. A lot of what I know about the book, she told me. But Keep I'm, your highlighter handy. Yeah, I need to get a copy yeah. of that book. You know, I just, I just I, revisited They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer, which is also eerie and a book that's really worth paying attention to. Rich, thanks have for that. You re- have, you, have you read his Berlin Diaries? Who's Berlin uh, Diaries? Uh, Shirer. No, I have he was, not. He was, a cor- he was a correspondent based in Berlin mm-hmm. right up until they kicked the uh, correspondents out when they, uh, right. at Pearl Harbor. And that's very interesting, too, because it's written in the moment, you know, the diary. Yeah. So, Fascinating. Really I, need to, I need to dig back into it. Rich, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's up? We're, we're, we're in a cultural uh, shift right now, and is it fair to say that we can, can actually get a view as to how America really feels about itself this election? I mean, I mean, and what I mean by how white America really feels about himself right now. Well, well, I think I think, you know, given that no Democrat has been elected president with a white majority since Lyndon Johnson's 1964 election, that was the last time. I'm not sure that we can generalize how white America feels. I, I think that there's a pretty radical split in well, white America. Well, I mean, and, and I'm asking you because, I mean, as a black man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, this guy here is radical. I'm, I've, I've yeah. never witnessed anything like this before. And, you know, what all, you know, with the bombs, I'm like, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm like, it's, why isn't the business community really in an uproar because isn't this around the height of really package time you know start people starting to buy stuff and sending it i'm like what's really going on i mean yeah. there's not enough people in the right places saying the right things that's supposed to be saying something i mean i know that all this is driven by money and i'm like you know the people that's really controlling what's going on i'm not hearing enough of that going on because that, that's the you know that's the platform that i'm talking about 
the yeah. business leader. I'm not understanding this. Yeah. I, you know, there there was talk about the the business Republicans, you know, the Main Street Republicans, the uh, Chamber of Commerce Republicans opposing Trump during the primaries. And then I think they all everybody just got quiet during the election because they figured that he would lose and Hillary would become president and they could just, you know, get behind some other Republican. And I'm guessing, Rudy, right now that the business community is pretty freaked out, too. But I'm not hearing anything close to enough of it. Uh, out of that, although this, you know, Land O'Lakes just pulled out from supporting Steve King. I don't know why they did in the first place. We'll see how it shakes out. Rudy, thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get involved and bring your friends along. Tell them about our show. Wake them up. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 